chapter 2, we come to the first of five warning passages in Hebrews. You see, apostasy is real. Apostasy is real. It happens. I know people personally who've walked away from the faith. But we must be careful to pay attention to the message God has delivered in His Son. And that is the message that we will hear today in God's holy word. So let's look now to chapter 2, 1 to 4, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll uh, uh, look to God to bless the preaching of His word. Hear now the reading of God's holy word as is found in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, or for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared or spoken by angels proved to be reliable, that is, legally binding, and every transgression or disobedience, right, an unwillingness to listen, received a just retribution or just punishment, how shall we escape if we neglect, right, we lack interest in such a great salvation? It was declared or spoken at first by the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who heard, that is the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His, that is, God's will. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the living God abides forever. Let us look to Him and ask for His blessing. Our Lord, we come and we humble ourselves before You. We would pray for grace to do that, for we are proud and a haughty people in Adam, objects of wrath, apart from God, without hope. But Lord, you have called us, you've translated us out of the first Adam and put us in Adam the second, our Lord Jesus Christ, the the better Adam, the truer Israel, the obedient son. So Lord, we would come and ask that you would, by your spirit, enable us to make much of him this day that we might hold fast to him who holds us in his hand, that he who began the good work is faithful to complete it. And one of the means that he employs to complete that great work of salvation is the means of warnings and exhortations. So we pray that you give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us this day. Lord Jesus, be glorified. Give me grace to be humble. Take my poor efforts and bless it. Fill and feed your people. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In today's world, we are virtually drowning, as it were, in an ocean of communication. Media, advertisement, we're constantly being bombarded in social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. Yes, kids, I even know what those things are. I'm not that old. You name it. All of these things are seeking to get our attention seeking to capture our affections, seeking to shape our imaginations, desiring to shape the way we think. The key to navigating these, destruction, these distractions rather, is being able to discern which messages are worthy of our attention. 
In Hebrews 2, 1 to 4, the voice of God is crying out, urging us to pay attention to the most important message in all of life. You see, beloved, God has spoken. He has spoken in His final word, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what has He revealed in His Son? What has He spoken? He has revealed and spoken of a way of salvation for sinners to be saved through faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You would think that would garner the attention of everyone, but that's not the case. You see, the original readers here in the book of Hebrews had begun well. They had begun well, but now they are beginning to question, is Jesus worth it? Is it worth it following Jesus? You see, now the cost of discipleship was taking its toll on them. They were following Jesus, but it was coming at great personal cost. There was family rejection. They were open to public shame. There was the loss of property, the threat of martyrdom. Many were forsaking the assembling of themselves together for worship. And Hebrews 2, 1 to 4 is a warning for those who are in danger of drifting. Those who are in danger of shipwrecking their faith. You see, the author is fully convinced and committed to the final perseverance of the saints that true believers cannot be lost. And yet the preacher knows that the Lord uses warnings and admonitions to preserve His children in the visible church. And here he tells them lovingly and soberly to pay attention to the message they first received. For how shall we escape if we neglect if we're indifferent, ambivalent to such a great salvation. So this morning what I want to do is just kind of exegetically walk through the text and then conclude with a few applications for us this morning. First, I want us to think about the the exegetical outline, if you will. First, in verse 1, we see the exhortation, right, to pay attention. And then verses 2 to 4, we have the, the rationale, the reasoning for the exhortation. So let's first look at the exhortation in verse 1. Notice how he begins with the word, therefore. Some of your translations perhaps say, for this reason. Right? This signals the connection between all that the preacher has just said in chapter 1 about the superiority of the Son, that He is God's final word in verses 1 to 3, to all that preceded Him, But he's also superior to the angels. To which of the angels did he say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Right? And here he makes the connection, the implication as it were. And he goes on. He drives home the implications. He includes himself. Notice what he says. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard. You see, he puts himself right there. He knows that he's prone to wander, prone to leave the God he confesses to love, save the grace of Jesus Christ, working to will within him that which is good and pleasing to him. You see, it's all of grace, justification, sanctification, glorification. It's all of grace from beginning to end. Pay close attention. That is, having the sense of paying heed to something extremely important. It's a, it's a nautical word. It, it's likened to the fastening of a ship to the, to the floor of the sea with an anchor. You see, the anchor must be set in the floor of the sea for it to be set that the ship might not float and drift away. 
pay careful attention to the message of salvation, he says. He goes on, lest we drift away again. The picture is also nautical. Not of a ship, not anchored, but a ship being carried along by the current and taken out to sea. Once when I was a lifeguard, yes, believe it or not, I lifeguarded at Myrtle Beach uh, one year. And uh, there was always, there was this city uh, rule, statute, that you could only go out about 100 feet. But people would often get on a float and then get out and they'd lay down and just, just fall asleep, actually, on that float. And they would just actually drift out to sea. Sometimes you'd actually have to go out and retrieve them. They'd be too far to even hear the whistle to bring them back in. See, that's the picture here, lest we drift away, right, unawares. And here's the logic of what the preacher's arguing from chapter 1 here to the implication here in chapter 2. Since Jesus is the divine son, right, as he's the Davidic king, we know that he's greater than all the prophets of old. He's greater than the angels. And now having been cleansed of our sins by his blood, we must pay careful attention to the message that Christ and his apostles have delivered unto us, lest we drift away from the faith. You see, because he understands and he knows that apostasy is real. Now in verses 2 to 4, he gives the reason for the exhortation. And he uses this this logic of a a lesser to the greater. Notice what he says in verse 2. For or since or because the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. That's a legal word like you would use in a court setting. It's a word of testimony. It, It was reliable. It was faithful. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. That is a just payment. Last week, in chapter 1, we saw how the preacher compared and contrasted the angels with the Son of God to show the Son's superiority to the angels. We said that it was widely believed and taught that angels played a prominent role in the giving of the Mosaic Law. We saw this from Deuteronomy 33, Acts chapter 7, 53, that sermon of Stephen, and also Paul from Galatians 3, 19. So in some way, we're not exactly sure, we have to reconstruct it as it were. In some way, the angels received the law and mediated that law to Moses. And that's the point he's trying to make. Now here in chapter 2, the preacher is once again comparing and contrasting the old covenant that was delivered through angels with the new covenant that was delivered not through angels, but through the Son the Davidic heir, the Davidic king, right? Saints, the author knows the temptation his readers face in wanting to return. So he reminds them of superiority of the new covenant in comparison to the old covenant. The old covenant was mediated through angels. That's great and glorious. But it's nothing compared to the greater covenant, the greater reality of the new covenant now delivered and spoken by God himself, God incarnate. So he makes his case, showing this superiority of Christ and the new covenant to that of Moses. In verse 2, we're told that the old covenant was delivered and mediated again through angels and it proved itself reliable. And every transgression of the covenant received a just retribution. Here we have the logic of how the law works, right? Saints, the message of the law is simple. 
It really is. It's, it's clear. We all understand it. it. It's written on our heart, as it were, as image bearers. And Adam, our conscience, you perfectly obey the law and you live. You disobey and you must die. That's simple. Galatians 3.10, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You see, under the old covenant, every transgression of the law demanded a just penalty. In chapter 2, verse 3, the preacher now zeroes in on his argument. Given the authority of the message of the law given through angels that every single sin received what it deserved, right? The soul that sins shall surely die. He makes his case. How shall we escape? If we neglect, that is, lose interest in such a great salvation, this salvation that's now been spoken not through angels, but through the Son of God, the Davidic heir, the King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, the preacher is arguing, again, from the lesser to the greater. If the law demanded just retribution and payment for sin, how much more will God judge those who spurn the gospel? Declared not by angels, but by the Son. And the answer to the question, right, the rhetorical question there in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, a salvation delivered through the Son of God? How shall we escape? We shall not escape. You will not escape. You will not escape the judgment of God if you reject the salvation offered in the Son. You see, the gospel is not a take-it-or-leave-it message. Rather, it's a take-it-and-live and escape the wrath of God, the eternal judgment of God, or neglect it and eternally perish. Now, I know that's not politically correct, but that's the reality. You know, I was hearing this this week, one of the uh, cabinet members in the Biden White House, and I don't, I don't be political, I'm not being political, because this is on the right and the left. But the cabinet member was saying that the greatest existential threat to mankind is climate change. Whenever we think of that, true, false, we know one thing, we know one thing, it's not the greatest threat. The greatest threat that you have, that I have, is standing before God apart from the mediation of the Son of the living God. That's the greatest threat. That's the greatest existential threat that you have. That big fancy word, philosophical word, right? One we feel the biggest angst about. We shall not escape. You see, the word of God is clear here. It unashamedly teaches we shall not escape if we neglect the salvation that comes in the Son. Those who neglect the salvation offered in the Son will face a certain judgment. Listen to Hebrews 2, rather Hebrews 12, 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Who is speaking? The living God. That's who's speaking. 
His word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, exposing and cutting our souls. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who, who warns us from heaven? We shall not escape if we reject and neglect and just brush off to the side or ambivalent to the gospel. This word neglect is the word that's used in Matthew 22, verse 5. You remember the parable of the wedding feast? The king has this son. He's going to have this big wedding feast for his son. His son's going to get married. The invitations go out, we're told. And we're told that some paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, the other to his business. It's the same picture here. They're just ambivalent, care less. Beloved, you shall not escape if you neglect so great a salvation, the salvation that's come in the Son of God. In the second half, verses 3 to 4, the preacher unpacks for us why it is utter folly to neglect such a great salvation. He gives us three reasons, as it were, three reasons for, for putting our faith in the God who's revealed so great a salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. He marshals the evidence, as it were, before the courtroom. It's legal language. You see, our, our faith is not just some leap in the dark. It's not irrational. It's based in evidence. It's based in historical realities. And these are historical realities. Verse 3, he tells us, it, its great salvation was declared at first by the Lord himself, right? In contrast to the message delivered by the angels, that is the Mosaic Covenant, God himself took upon himself our flesh. He, he assumed our humanity, not by subtraction, but by addition. Two natures and one person forever joined. God became man to deliver salvation to his people. God's final word, the creator, sustainer, the, the redeemer, the heir of all things, entered human history and revealed God to us. You've seen me, you've seen the Father, saith the Son. He's come. Emmanuel has drawn near. The friend of Abraham has taken to himself flesh. We must pay close attention. Two, the, the second argument. Notice what he says. The author tells us not only was the word personally delivered by the Lord himself, this word in verse 3 was attested to us by those who heard. The gospel was attested and confirmed. Again, legal language to us by eyewitnesses who heard and saw Jesus. You see, the gospel is not a clearly devised myth and fable. We're told that in the academy. Right? You guys just believe in these myths, the tooth fairy and the Easter bunny. Oh, no, 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 no. No, it's historical. It's anchored in fact, as Machen would say. It's, it's the facts that save us. And the interpretation of those facts by the apostles. Right? You see, this is what's happened. Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were there at the transfiguration. We saw Moses, and we saw Elijah, and we heard the voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him, he said. They saw and they heard 
1 John 1, 2, the, the gospel, John says, came to us. We heard, we saw, and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim it to you, eternal life, you see. It's all about history and what God's done in history in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, notice the third reason for putting our trust in this great salvation. Verse 4, notice what it says. God also bore witness by signs and wonders and miracles. You see, God the Father added His own witness to the truth of the revelation of the Son with miraculous signs and wonders. These miracles authenticated the, the message of the apostles. It gave it veracity. Yes, this is true. We can only explain it, what God is doing and has done in His Son. You see, these signs, these miracles, these wonders were God's seal of approval, His signature upon the message of these Christians who initially received it. You see, not only the Father, but notice as well, it's a triune work. Notice the, the third person of the Godhead. Notice God the Holy Spirit. Notice what it says. Who distributed to His people gifts according to His will. You see, the Father decreed it. The Son executed the decree. And the Holy Spirit takes the word that the Son accomplished and applies it to his people, effectually calling them out of darkness into his marvelous life. The reason you believe today is because God's quickened you. He's regenerated your heart. He's taken away the heart of stone, and he's given you a heart of flesh that you might cry glory with all the angels and all the saints in heaven. You see, this is what God has done. This is God's work and is well-pleasing in our eyes. You see, this great salvation declared by the Son Born witness to by the apostles, authenticated by the miracles of God, we must pay close attention to, lest we drift away, lest you take a nap, right? I want to use the remainder of my time just driving home a reflection on spiritual drifting. The verb drift is defined as followed. To be carried slowly by a current of air or water. Like a kite in the air. Or a little sailboat on the little pond over here at uh, Bird Park. First, spiritual drifting, now listen, is often imperceptible. Well, what do I mean? This is what I mean. When I, as a lifeguard, would call to those folks who drifted out past the hundred yards, past the shoreline, they would often be startled. You know, I'd sometimes have to swim out, like I said, the whistle, just too far gone. I'd have to actually go out with my little orange buoy and swim out. Always nervous, because they're pretty big critters out there in the Atlantic. But I'd give up on them, and, then, and I'd startle them because they had fallen asleep. They really had no idea what was happening. So I, I'd come up upon them, and I, I'd shake them, and they'd, they'd be like, what happened? And they'd look at the shoreline, and they'd be like, whoa, all panicky and nervous. 
Likewise, all we have to do, all you have to do, all I have to do to spiritually drift is to do nothing. To neglect. To forsake the assembling of ourselves together. To neglect the means of grace. To neglect prayer. To neglect fellowship. To neglect attending to your soul with words, sacrament. To begin to compromise with sin. Just a little sin. Not a big sin. Just a little one. A wee little sin. That's all you need to do. Just begin to compromise. Just one degree. Just like you're changed from one degree of glory to the next, Paul says about sanctification, progressively, as we look upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we can can begin to grow cold. Before long, we're lukewarm. He'll spew us out of his mouth. As you begin to do this, you'll find yourself spiritually in a place you never thought or imagined. Spiritually speaking, you'll be out to sea. And saints, most often, drifting starts not with some life-changing, shaking crisis, right? Instead, in our present, current cultural milieu and context, it often begins with the subtle currents of placing your career before your walk with Christ. Placing financial security before your walk with Christ. Some of you is just sleeping, being lazy. Some of us, it's personal entertainment and desire for entertainment, personal recreation. For some of us, it's, it's social acceptance. What will they think about me in school if I just become too hot for Jesus? What will they think? They'll write me off. Oh, he's just some Jesus freak. He's, too, he's a goody two-shoes. Right, kids? At university, when you stand for the truth. You see, now all of these things, right? Recreation, financial well-being, while not evil in themselves, can begin when left unchecked to loosen the line to the anchor, the Lord Jesus Christ. John Owen, who is brilliant, brilliant, right Jeff, brilliant in his commentary on Hebrews, says this, the warmth of prosperity breeds swarms of apostates. The warmth of prosperity breeds swarms of apostates just as the heat of the sun doth insects in the spring. So this week, as the weather begins to warm, hopefully, and you start to see those insects, you need to start to think about John Owen and Jonathan Edwards. And let them speak truth to you. The warmth of prosperity breeds apostates. It's hard for a rich man to go into the kingdom of God. Beloved, in Christ, the preacher tells us in 
Hebrews 6.19, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. But you see, apostasy happens with one little compromise after another. And the preacher tells us that there's only one way to fight against the danger of spiritually drifting. We must pay closer attention to the Word of God. Do you have ears? As the Lord Jesus would say, use them. Heed the voice of the living God as he comes in his word. It's like Paul in there in uh, Ephesians, Jeff, right? Awake! Oh, son, you think, why does he say that? You think it's out of place? No, he knows. He knows how apt it is for us to drift. To put it in neutral and just coast. Somehow coasting in the heaven. Is that the picture you get in the Word of God as you read the Word of God? No, I'm afraid not. Is that the picture that, that, that Bunyan paints for us in Pilgrim's Progress? No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Is that the picture that Paul paints for Timothy there in Ephesus? As a faithful farmer, a hardworking athlete, as a as a diligent soldier, right? All of these metaphors are rich and packed with sweat, blood, sweat, and tears. Work it out. Right? Work out this great salvation that's come in the sun. Not through angels, but through the sun. Don't be so foolish. Run as so to win the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. We must pay closer attention to the Word of God. You see, orthodoxy and obedience are the two oars we must use to fight against the cross-currents of spiritual drift, against the world, the flesh, and the devil. You see, beloved, we're either listening to the Son and walking in His Word, or we are drifting and are imperceptibly being carried along by all the cultural currents of the day. That's true of each one of us. This happens in individuals and families and churches, denominations, right? In churches, once confessional and orthodox. They slowly minimize and relax their theological convictions. And before long, they're unwilling to draw boundaries. They're unwilling to speak prophetically to the world about righteousness and sin and judgment. Saints, things like federal vision and its denial of imputed righteousness, side B Christianity, these things don't happen. Except in the absence of the church being what it's called to be. They slowly infect the church. Scottish minister Robert Haldane ministered in the 19th century and he, he, he went to Geneva, right? Gene the Calvin's Geneva in the 19th century. And he arrives in Geneva, and this is what he says. He says, Geneva had departed from the Word. They were denying the Trinity and the biblical doctrine of salvation in Geneva. If it can happen in Geneva, it can happen here. If they can run off Edwards, they can run off Machen, they can run off me. They can run off Jeff and Jeff. They'll run you out. 
Beloved, there are no magic formulas here to avoiding spiritual drift. We have to pay attention to what God has spoken in His Son. John 17, 17, that beautiful prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, sanctify them by Your truth. Your Word is truth. You want to be sanctified? Get in the Word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing the Word of God. Right, reading Hebrews throughout the week so you can hold me accountable, holding my feet to the fire for every word that falls out of my mouth, that we might be Bereans, measuring everything that any man says in this church by the Word of God, by that canon of the Word. We need to be anchored in the Word. The place of warnings in the Christian life. The place of warnings. Nels alluded to this a little bit in his uh, teaching today, right? We're Calvinists. Uh, I believe in the doctrine of election. Justification by faith alone, right? Westminster Catechism. We memorize the, the question and the answer. But saints, I would be remiss if I didn't address this subject of warnings. There, there are five warning passages in Hebrews. And we'll say more as we go along, but just a couple of things today, this morning. First, God uses warnings in the lives of true believers to spur them on in Jesus Christ. The Lord who ordains the end ordains the means to that end. Warnings are just as much a means for accomplishing the end of our salvation as encouragement, as rebuke, and instruction. Beloved, God does not deal with His children as blocks of wood, but as responsible moral agents who need discipline, who need warnings, as well as encouragement to get all the way home. Those who are true believers hear the warnings about the reality of apostasy, about the reality of drifting away imperceptibly, and they tremble. And they begin to do a little self-evaluation. Am I truly converted? I'm a ruling elder in the church, 40 years. Hold fast. Don't neglect so great a salvation. Well, I've read... Bavink and Burkhoff and Beza, Machen and Edwards. I don't care. How shall we escape? How shall you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? You will not escape. You will not escape. Saints, those who in the end walk away from the faith, and people do walk away from the faith. We know people in this congregation who are no longer walking with Jesus. They've walked away. Now, if they're still living, there's still hope, right? We still pray. But if they die in that state of apostasy, how shall they escape? They shall not escape. But those who walk away never had saving faith to begin with. Like the, the parable of the soils, right? The parable of the hearts of, of, of people who receive the word. Some... Receive it. It's like water off a duck's back, like seed on the asphalt. 
Some receive it and uh, uh, the cares of the world choke it out. Some receive it and uh, riches choke it out. But some receive it and there's 30, 60, 100 fold. Which are you? Are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Are you not neglecting the means of grace? Are you pursuing these things? And then lastly, beware of drifting to the point of no return. The point of no return. There's a point of no return. What's on the line this morning? The most precious thing that you have. And what is that? Your soul. Your soul's on the line. If the law brought just retribution, how much more retribution awaits those who reject the gospel of the Son? How shall we escape? We won't. So this morning in conclusion, each one of us needs to stop and consider what our relationship with Christ is like today. And and don't be listening to this sermon, well, I wish Jim was here to hear this. Now, you need to hear this this morning. I need to hear it this morning. I'm, list, I'm preaching to myself, lest we drift away. How shall we escape? We shall not escape. Pastor, you will not escape if you neglect so great a salvation. We need to stop and consider what our relationship to Christ is like. First, some of you are unbelievers. You've never made an attachment to Christ. You've never professed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you attached? (laughs) And if you are attached, is my attachment today stronger than it's been in the past? As we work through the book of Hebrews, we're going to find out that there are only two sorts of knots that tie us and tie the the mooring rope to the anchor. Those two two types of knots are those who are growing tighter over time and those that are looser than they once were and are in danger of slipping. So church, we ask, how is it possible that a professing believer would drift away? There's only a one-word answer. How is it possible that you would drift away? Yes, you would drift away by neglecting so great a salvation. That's how it's possible. Just one word, neglect it. Be ambivalent to it. One went to his farm. Another went to his business matter. Who cares? The son is getting married. The father's throwing a feast. I've got more important things to do and entertain. How shall we escape? We shall not. We shall not. May God give us grace to hear what the Spirit is saying. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you treat us as sons, not as orphans. That you come in your holy word to not only encourage, not only to bring instruction, but to rebuke and to warn. 
and that these warnings are your very means to spur us, are the fuel of our sanctification by faith as we look to Him, the author and the finisher of our faith, who uses these very means to bring us all the way home into the new heavens and new earth, into the church triumphant, that we might hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, Father, work to will within us, even as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.